It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law. Featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to malkbaker.com, that's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com, or call 312-726-1243. Have you ever heard someone talk about the separation of church and state as a way to justify keeping religion out of the public square and politics? Today, I'll be speaking with David Barton, the founder of Wall Builders, a national organization dedicated to presenting America's forgotten history and heroes. Wall Builders' goals are to educate the nation concerning our foundations, support public policy that reflects biblical values, and encourage Christians to be more involved in the civic arena. David, welcome back to our show. It's great to be back with you again. Thanks for having me. Uh, David, can you tell us, uh, can you give uh, a little brief uh, summary of uh, the Wall Builders story, which gives the name to your, uh, to your organization? Yeah, Wall Builders is the name that we take from the Bible book of Nehemiah. We think that it's a terrific story of really for where America is today. It's a story of a nation rebuilding the great things it had that had been torn down. And in the Old Testament and in Bible times, if you did not have a wall around your city, you weren't going to last very long. So the Babylonians had had torn down that wall. Nehemiah went back and said, let's become a great city again and rebuilt that wall. And so in the the image that we see in the Bible, it was everybody did something. Uh, In rebuilding that wall, it wasn't just stonemasons. We're told that a jeweler was there, a perfume maker, a man and his daughters, soldiers, and we like that, that image of the greatest grassroots um, story in the Bible for America, that if we all get involved and do something, we can get this turned around in a hurry. And that really was the conclusion of their story. They all thought it would be impossible to rebuild that wall, and yet 52 days later it was done because everybody did something. And so that's what we like. And, and we, we particularly say rebuilding the, the moral, the constitutional, and the religious foundations of America. And those are things that we try to see rebuilt across the country. Oh, that's great. That's a great story. Where do we get the concept of separation of church and state anyway? It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the Constitution, but there is a clear biblical concept of it. But the problem we have today is how do you define it? Uh, there, There is a historical definition that was used essentially for 4,000 years, and then starting in 1947, the U.S. Supreme Court invented their own new definition. So we're working under two definitions of the same term today. The historic definition that, that we'd used in America all the way up until 1947 was pretty simple. It was in the Bible when God created his own nation, Israel. They had been slaves for 400 years. They did not know how to be a nation. He set them up, gave them 613 laws. And when it's all over and done, he says, now here's the deal. I've got Moses over all the civil stuff, and I've got Aaron over all the spiritual stuff. I don't want one guy running both sides. And so we have, at that point, a separation of church and state, if you will. Uh, we have Second Chronicles 26, where King Uzziah came in, 
and he did what was later done in the world. He said, I'm the king, I can be the priest as well. And so he decides to go into the temple and offer sacrifices. The priests say, no, 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 you can't do that. You're the king, you're not the priest. He says, I don't ever tell me what I can and can't do. He goes in to offer sacrifices. God himself strikes him down at the altar. He gets leprosy, goes outside, later dies as a result. God made it really clear, I don't want the same person running both institutions. Now, neither one was a secular institution because God ordained and created them both, and God was very heavily the center of both civil and both religious areas, but you did not have the same guy doing them both. That's the way it was until 390 A.D., when Emperor Theodosius, he, he becomes a Christian, and Emperor Theodosius says, man, this Christianity is really good. I'm the emperor of the world. Here's my new law. You're all going to be Christians, or I'm going to kill you. And at that point, he took over the theology of the church, and starting 390 A.D. for about the next thousand years, you had state governments running the church. They would tell you what the doctrines were. We have a, a collection of about 120,000 items from before 1812. And part of that is we have a number of laws passed by Parliament, where Parliament, if you will, our Congress, but this is in Great Britain, but Parliament is telling you who can and cannot take communion, who can and cannot preach the gospel. And so now you, you've got the government telling people how to practice their faith and how they can and can't do it. And then we get these state-established religions. In the case of America, hey, the, the government of Britain is Anglican, and you're all going to be Anglicans. And so we have William Penn, who spends eight months in jail in the Tower of London because he did not attend an Anglican church. He attended a Quaker church, and that was illegal. So state-established religion is when the government comes in and tells you how you can and can't practice your faith, what you can and can't do with your faith in public, that they're the ones that start setting the standards. We had never allowed that. Um, Thomas Jefferson is the one who used the phrase separation church and state in America. At least the courts love quoting him. A number of other guys used it. But Jefferson, when he becomes president of the United States, he had a history record of defending all denominations because he came from the state of Virginia, which had the state-established church, the Anglican Church in Virginia. And in his state, he had watched as Anglicans killed, Quaker, killed Quakers for not preaching with the uh, Anglican license. He watched as, as Anglicans imprisoned Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, uh, all for not preaching with the Anglican license. So he went to court on numerous occasions to say, no, all Christian denominations are equal. The government should not be choosing winners and losers uh, w with faith. And, and so he argued that in court. Interestingly, when he becomes president of the United States, the Baptists are his favorite friends. I mean, they, they wrote him letters all over the nation saying, oh, my gosh, we are so thrilled you're president. We're praying for you. Because Baptists were a religious minority in every state in America except the, the state of Rhode Island. And so now that he's president, they're convinced that they're not going to be persecuted because we now have a president there who thinks all denominations should be equal. So they write him a letter, and, and by the way, they wrote him out of Connecticut, which was a very congregational state, and they said, you know, we really don't like the fact that we're guaranteed our free exercise of religion because that means government is guaranteeing it. It's a God-given guarantee. Government should have nothing to do with our religion. And that's where Jefferson wrote back and said, guys, you don't have to worry. There is a wall of separation between church and state. And Jefferson explained that that wall would keep the government from stopping a religious activity. So the wall of separation as defined in history, as defined in the Bible, and as defined in American tradition is the government will not interfere with religious activities. You'll be free to practice them wherever. 
that's when it changed in 1947. The court said, well, there's a wall of separation. We need to keep that wall high and impregnable. And then suddenly, you can't say the word God at graduation. You can't have a nativity scene in public. You've got to take those Ten Commandments down out of the classrooms. It's time to end Bible reading in schools. Can't have voluntary prayer. Suddenly, the government is telling us what we can and can't do with the religion, which violates separation of church and state. So that's kind of the overview history. Uh, there's been almost 4,000 uh, cases since 1947 on First Amendment issues, on separation of church and state issues. And in 4,000 cases, the court has quoted separation of church and state 3,000 times rather than quoting the First Amendment, which says nothing about separation of church and state. It just guarantees the free exercise. So that's a long monologue, but that's kind of the overview of how we, how we get to where we are today. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm Malk & Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today, I'm speaking with David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, about religious liberty. So what you're saying is uh, religion and government uh, can intersect at, at times, right? They can and they should intersect, um, at least according to original intent under uh, in America. One of the great examples is George Washington, after two terms as president, the only president chosen in the history of the United States with no opposition. The whole nation's behind him. He's the hero. And as he leaves office in 1796, September 1796, he leaves what's called his farewell address, probably considered the greatest political address by any U.S. president. And in that, he just reminds America why we're a different nation and he tells them, he says, of all the dispositions and habits that lead to political prosperity, uh, of everything that makes this country work, he said religion and morality are indispensable supports. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. In other words, he says, guys, here's the deal. Our politics, our country works because of religion and morality. And anyone who tries to separate that from the public square, I will not let them call themselves a patriot. And certainly he knows a patriot. He had him throughout the Revolution, Valley Forge, etc. So Washington establishes the litmus test that you cannot be an American patriot if you try to secularize the public square, if you try to take religion and morality out of public, you will ruin our government and you are not a patriot. So that's the tone that we had in America for all those years. That's the way we understood the First Amendment again until we got some, some judicial activists on the court in the 1940s. And that's when things start turning. Well, I, that same concept is throughout the uh, Federalist Papers, where uh, Hamilton and Madison and Jay really talk about the need for a moral people to support right. a republic, that you can't have a republic, you can't have liberty, you can't have uh, freedom without this underlying moral um, basis upon which it can be built. And I think that's really critical throughout our history. Coming up, we'll talk further with David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, about how we interpret the separation of church and state and uh, how we protect religious liberty. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus.
I'm David Smith, Executive Director of the Illinois Family Institute, an independent nonprofit ministry dedicated to boldly bringing a biblical perspective to public policy. Here at IFI, our mission is to support traditional family values, defend biblical truths, and uphold Christian morals. We consider Mauk and Baker our allies in this mission, and we are proud to support them in their legal endeavors. Mauk and Baker is a law firm that upholds Christian beliefs, putting God first. If you ever find your religious liberty and rights as a person of faith under attack, you can trust the attorneys of Mauk and Baker to fight for you. Mauk and Baker has a team of Christian lawyers who seek to achieve justice and advance the gospel through their work. If you have a legal need or question and would like the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact Mauk and Baker at 312-726-1243 or visit their website at maukbaker.com. Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Mauk and Baker, a law firm based in Chicago which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today I've been speaking with David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, about protecting our religious liberty. Uh, David, um, one question that people ask is, you know, I'm, a, I'm an atheist, I'm a Jew, I'm a Hindu, uh, and, you know, I'm afraid of all these um, uh, religious Christians and the special protections that uh, they seem to be claiming. You know, why should we give religion special protections which aren't available to us Hindus or us um, atheists? Well, I would first challenge them to say, show me examples of where we have special protections for Christians that are not available for everyone else. Now, I will say that while we do uh, uh, protect freedom of speech for everyone, we go a step further and say, and by the way, we also protect religious speech. So we do single religious speech out in the First Amendment separate from free speech. So in that sense, there's a, at least a double listing. But that just shows how important it was to those who created the nation that we not separate the religious principles. And so one of the things that was pointed out by so many founding fathers is even from a secular point of view, religious principles make a terrific nation. If everyone were to live by Jesus' teaching on the Golden Rule and the Good Samaritan, oh my gosh, what a terrific nation we would have. So I know of no example, I know of no place in America today where the, the Christians get greater protection or greater rights than any other. They get what everyone else does, and the Constitution also singles that out to make sure you understand that not just speech, but also religious speech is directly protected. Well, I would add, David, that not only religious speech, but also religious practice is protected right. out in the, right. in the public square and in the marketplace. Isn't that a, a special protection that well, everybody it, else doesn't get? No, it really is not, because everyone gets the court starting back in 1976 with cases like uh, Texas v. Johnson said, hey, flag burning is okay because that's an expression, and everyone is protected in their expression. And so the court began protecting actions as not just speech, but expression. We used to say that, that burning a flag was an action. The court said, well, we consider that part of free speech. 
So in the last 40 to 50 years, the court has taken expression to be part of speech, which is why you, you have the, the protest, we have all the other things. But it is interesting to me that we have moved in a different direction as the court is now starting to redefine back toward original intent. And uh, under that, in the last three months, we've won five cases that I've not seen one in my lifetime where the court is starting to return toward the concept that, you know, religion really is special. And we're not going to demand a secular square, which we've done for the last 50 years. We're now going to tell you, for example, that in Lehigh County, Pennsylvania, it is okay for you to have a really big Christian cross on your city seal. And that's the first city seal case we've won in my lifetime. So the, the court has essentially set aside what we used to call the lemon test, uh, which really is a lemon of a test, but it required that if you're going to do something religious in public, the primary purpose has to be secular. Well, there's no way to win that. You can't tell me the primary purpose of any religious activity is secular, which is why we were tearing down crosses like Mount Soledad in San Diego, etc. So actually Christians were having less freedom of expression than others were, because we couldn't express religious symbols publicly, whereas everyone else could express secular symbols publicly. So we're seeing a turn, again, just in the last three months. Um, we've got two cases at the Supreme Court this year that will also deal with more of this turn. At least if we win them, it'll be a, a greater increase. But I think for a long time, secular folks have had more protection for their expressions than religious folks have had for theirs, although I see it starting to change now and come back to where that both sides are getting their expressions. Well, I've always thought that uh, freedom of, of expression, freedom of speech for one, means freedom of speech for all. So to the extent that uh, we can expand freedom of speech for Christians, we're doing it for uh, atheists and for Muslims That's and right. for Hindus and everybody else, and giving them uh, broader protections as well. So I don't see this as special protection, but rather protection that ought to be given uh, really to everybody. I agree. I, I, it's not special protections, and for Christians to be able to have a freedom of expression that they've not enjoyed in decades is nothing more than everyone, because if you can single out Christians, you can choose other groups and single out other groups. We Left-handed people lose their freedom of expression, or if you're blonde-haired, or whatever it is. So for everyone to have that freedom of expression is really good. And we have seen that, that faith people have been behind behind the curve on this, for a number of years, but I, I do think that is turning. Uh, the Bladensburg Cross decision, uh, the the Pensacola Cross decision. I mean, these are all new decisions in the court's jurisprudence of the last 50 years, and, and so we're starting to win that. The, the the Pennsylvania prayer decision in the legislature of Pennsylvania, uh, the VA decision on display of Bibles and use of Bibles. I mean, these are all decisions in the last three months that are taking a brand new direction, which is consistent with the Constitution and history, but it's also good for everyone because it's protecting the religious expression, which means secular expressions are already protected. So this is good for everybody. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm Malk & Baker. If you're just tuning in, make sure to visit MalkBaker.com to hear the rest of this interview. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today I'm speaking with David Barton, founder of Wall Builders, about protecting religious liberty and freedom of expression. Now, uh, should we mix religion and politics when we're voting? 
I mean, uh, if we're if we're going to keep this separation, um, should we you know somehow try to rem- forget our faith when we go into that voting booth? You know, that's one of the things that that if I if I take this by the Supreme Court's own decisions in the last thirty to forty years, a number of decisions back in the Vietnam War, the Welsh decision, others. The court said, whatever you believe so strongly that it affects your life is a religion. And this is why that today groups that get 501c3 nonprofit uh, protection, which is what we give the churches, include atheistic groups that are nonprofit church protection. You can have a deduction for giving to an atheist group uh, as a church. Uh, you can have that for Wiccans. You can have that for Church of Satan. You can have that for every conceivable idea that's out there. And so if that be true, that whatever you believe so much that it affects your life is your religion, I would argue that everyone who goes into the voting booth carries their religion with them. If it's climate change that drives your vote, if it's abortion that drives your vote, whatever you believe so strongly directs your life, that's your religion. That's by the Supreme Court's own definition in the 60s and 70s, then I would say, why should a Christian not take their faith into the booth with them as well? Everyone else takes their value systems in, why would I not take the, the system uh, of values on which so much of our jurisprudence is based? Why would I not take in the voting booth my belief that life begins conception actually before, according to the Bible, before you were conceived, I knew you, God told Jeremiah. Why would I not take my belief in that we should have public religious expressions? Why should I not vote on the basis of thinking that marriage is between a man and a woman? I should. Every, every other group votes on the basis of what they believe, and for Christians to not do the same is to tie their hands behind their back and put themselves at a disadvantage that no other group experiences. Well, that's right. It's, it's impossible uh, to not take your value system, however it's raised, right. uh, right. into account when you're voting. It just, it's just impossible. And what about lawmakers? I mean, that's the other end. Uh, once, once they're elected or when they're campaigning, should we uh, let their religious views affect them? I hope so, um, because that's why I vote for people I do. I voted for President Trump because of his views on Israel, and he kept his views on Israel. I voted for President Trump because of his views on abortion. He's done a great job of being pro-life. I voted for him because he said he was going to give us judges who would go back to original ten. He has. Everybody I vote for is on the basis of whether they are in line with what I believe to be important values. So I not only vote my values, I vote for people who hold those values because I want to see those values become public policy. And so as I look at the 150 judges that President Trump has appointed, this is the first time since 1947 that we're seeing a rollback toward original intent on religious liberties. But you know what? That's exactly why I voted for the guy. I voted for the guy because he would give us judges who actually read the Constitution didn't make it up. So, yes, I expect my political officials for whom I vote, I expect them to carry those values forward in society, just as the other side expects that, whether it's pro-abortion, whether it is gun control, whatever they vote for, they expect their people to carry it forward. I'm exactly the same. Yeah, I think for the very same reason that you can't divorce uh, your your value system from from your uh, voting, office holders can't do it either. David, thank you for speaking with us today. How can our listeners learn more about Wall Builders? Wallbuilders.com. Very easy. Just go to wallbuilders.com. Thousands of articles and artifacts there. Great. If you have a legal need or a question, 
and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malk and Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243. That's 312-726-1243 or at MalkBaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R.com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker, and this is Lawyers for Jesus. Have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody.